0: Hey there Recovery Nation, producer John here. This week's episode of Full Potential Now is part 1 of Ted's interview with Dr. Joseph Bluestein, a board certified addiction medicine physician practicing in Madison, Wisconsin. He's also a medical director of Atella Addiction Medicine Service for Wisconsin residents. He's board-certified in holistic medicine, and a registered trainer and supervisor for the NADA protocol. In part one, we learn about Dr. Bluestein, how he views addiction, and what he's thinking about currently in the addiction field. Let's listen in.
1: Uh, Call me weird, but I often wonder what doctors think about me when I go in for a checkup. Do they actually care? Will they actually take the time to listen to me this time? Or just quickly shuffle me out of the office with a prescription? What do people who are struggling with an addiction actually think of the professionals who are trying to help them? Especially those prescribing medications for their addiction. Do they actually think they'll take the time to listen to them? To actually understand them and what they're going through? Or do they, let's say, think they're just gonna hustle them off to get on to their next appointment. I can say working in the addiction field and seeing maybe sometimes seven, eight clients a day, I can't say that I'm not exactly guilty of some of the above. But what if that helping professional, despite the circumstances they're working in, could see it from a slightly different perspective? What could happen then? And what if that professional could even take on, let's say, the word addict and maybe redefine it as not someone's identity. I mean, let's face it, we all get addicted to something sometime. Does it really have to be our identity to the end of our life? What's a typical life, a day in the life of Joe, look like? A day in my life. Yeah, do you see patients all day? I mean, so often we kind of like, we, we hear all the definitely want to get tools and strategies to get help and all that good stuff, but oftentimes we just like to know the basics, like who are you just generally, maybe a little something about your personal life, and what a kind of typical day looks like for you.
2: Hmm. So I guess, you know, like the... uh, So and this is something that I'm I, I, that I'm constantly redefining myself, you know, and, and I think that this is kind of important, too, for, like, my patients, is to kind of say is that, and when I, on intake, I always say, you know, well, tell me about yourself. That's the first thing. I tell me something about yourself. And they say, well, oftentimes, it's like, well, what do you mean? Well, who are you? You know, and how how do you define, how do you characterize yourself? You know, so, like, you know i don't let them go on for hours but you know it's like i like to get an idea of who they think they are mm-hmm. oftentimes you know it's like uh people will define themselves as uh especially in wisconsin and maybe it's the patient you know i'm hard working i'm a father i'm a this i'm a that you know and um i would say about half of the patients put in there i'm an addict you know that uh of what their problem is, and, is it, and, I, and I find that kind of interesting. That that's how they define themselves. I mean, most people don't define themselves by the, the disease they have. I mean, yes. if you asked a diabetic, you know, oh, you know, I'm I'm 47 years old and I'm a diabetic. I mean, they they usually don't put that in their definition of self. And so, yeah. What's your you thoughts know, on that? Like, my thoughts, you know, because so, I usually I usually ask patients, you know, when they come in for follow up, you know, how are you? And now I think I'm going to change it and say, who are you today? You know, rather than, because I think we, and we, I redefine myself every morning when I wake up. It's like, oh, you know, yeah, I'm Joe. You know, it's like, I remember what I did yesterday, maybe, you know. Yeah. And uh, what I want to do today. When you say, what's a typical day? Well, a typical day kind of starts like, well, yeah. I'm auditing classes now at the university, and I'm auditing classes, you know, so, well, do I have class today? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and, uh... Um, so you can so and I, make sure I'm getting this correctly.
1: Yeah. So you're really saying, like, like typically people identify themselves with the tasks they do during the day, and, like, maybe husband, wife, and maybe even sometimes with, addicted, with addiction, like, I'm an addict, or I'm in recovery... But you're saying like maybe, to, maybe you maybe wake up in a different space each day, and you're constantly kind of redefining yourselves in little ways, and right. maybe
2: in a short
1: term and in long term. Right,
2: and it and it can be and doesn't have to be in little ways. It could be a major a major way. I mean, you, when you when you go to sleep and you are unconscious, it's like that you've died in some ways, you know, and then you're reborn when you wake up. So we all, all go through that. this. I mean, I if so you like this, love that. Yeah. So there's this kind of like resurrection. It's like okay. I'm still Joe, but may, I'm I'm no longer an addict. I'm no longer a diabetic. I'm no longer this. I'm no longer that. You know, it's like how do I? And I mean, the definition. I you know, this kind of conversation has kind of gone a little bit with other um, other people in terms of like, well, yeah, the people wear they wear masks. You know, we all wear masks. You know, like if we're talk, I'm talking to you, I'm wearing a mask. You know, I'm talking to like. The rabbi, I'm wearing a different mask. If I'm, you know, talking to locker room doctors. <laughs> like, These days, <laughs> if it's Donald Trump, I'm talking. You know. <laughs> probably, I've never had a conversation with the guy, <laughs> and not that I really want to, but I would probably be very, you know, guarded in terms of what I would say, you know. And when the DEA comes to, uh, to visit me in the office, I'm I'm wearing a different kind of mask. You know, when police officers pulls me over because I was going too fast or something. It's a different kind of mask that I have yeah. right we all wear kind of masks, so and it, and and it, and, it, and it kind of like, but that doesn't does that define us, you know so you know it's a, i and I think it's kind of often it's that inner reflection, i mean it's like it's not like oh, you know you have to reveal kind of some kind of deep secrets to me, it's just but you have the potential, and I think it's kind of nice the name of you know your Your podcast, you know, that that kind of really is what we're all about. You know, it's and um, that we have full potential, you know, and we usually don't live up to our potential. I mean, this things that you probably all heard, you know, it's like we only use 10 percent of our brain. Even the smartest people only use 10 percent of the brain. Well, what's the other 90 90 percent doing? I mean, if you said, oh, okay. how am I doing today? You know, and you took a test, like, in any class or something, and you got a 10%. That's not very good, is yeah, it? Yeah, 10%. So, you know, I think that's an important message to everyone is that you got 90% out there of your brain, you know, but that you can use for redefining yourself or doing other other activities. So there's always, like, possibilities
1: maybe out there. Like, you could have a crappy day. Have all kinds of, like, even in the addiction world, like, all kinds of, like, relapse thoughts, be on the edge, really bummed out, go to bed, think like your life is crap, but you wake up the next day, maybe the you see the sun come up, rises, it's a new day, and I think, are you saying that maybe we
2: can choose, we have a little power to choose how we're going to define ourselves that day? Yeah, I think that's where... I think it's like a lot of times people give up on that power to choose. They kind of say, this is who I am. I can't change. You know, I can't change. You know, and it's like, well, and and oftentimes we get stuck in that position of like saying that, oh, I'm an addict. You know, this is what I do. You know, this is what, uh, I'm a good father. I mean, there's certain things that you probably want to keep stuck. You know, I'm a... I'm a good worker, I'm a hard worker, you know, so there's certain things that you kind of want to stay stuck in. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, that whole thing I was talking to you about when we visited last time, remember that thing? uh, Yeah. LFT? Yeah, I was in your office, we were hanging out, and then,
1: you know, we're kind of thinking about clients that are on Suboxone, and maybe they're sort of like, not really all motivated, really totally motivated to get into recovery, but they've just been taking suboxone for a long time, and you're kind of wondering, hey, could we get them more motivated? Are they more motivated to maybe get into a recovery program? And then I sat in on a couple of the sessions, obviously, with their permission, and, and you helped me out with that, just get a gauge of, like, kind of people that you see. Is that kind of the meeting you're, you're thinking about? And then we met over at MATC, too, we were talking about a lot of things. Me and Joe were idea people. We talk about tons of stuff, but yeah, what
2: comes to mind for you? Oh no, I, I was thinking about that. You know that um, it's that engagement. You know, so that uh, th- that when a person becomes engaged in in their recovery, you know, and that they, you know, it's it, it to motivate someone. I think it's it all motivation is self motivation. So it's kind of like. Um, It it has to come from the individual, you know, so I could be their guide and and you can be their guide and you can help them to kind of uh, find what's going to be best for them. You know, and and, uh, yesterday I had a new patient and he asked me, you know, could you recommend something for me to read? And I was trying to think, oh what's a good book to read? I said, yeah. what do you... I said, what kind of... What kind of I, I didn't know if he wanted something on recovery. If he wanted, yeah. like, you know, a good graphic novel or something. You know, it's like... I said, well, what do you like to read? I said, well, I don't like to read much. I said, well, then why do you ask me to recommend
0: something? <laughs> <laughs> why do you think he did?
2: I don't know. I think he, a lot of times patients try to please their therapist or their doctor, you know, to kind of say, I want to tell him what he, I think he wants to hear. Oh, okay. You know, so uh, I think that's... Uh, a lot of it. So really, kind of, kind of like what I take from that, just
1: being in the therapy addiction world myself as a, as a counselor is, and really kind of maybe a shout out to other counselors out there, um, including people in recovery, is is this idea of like you, you have an identity, but it doesn't have to be set in concrete. That we can maybe make variations of our identity. That we have the power to do that, and it really starts with us internally and what we want to do. And if as therapists or helping professionals, we can engage people at their level and really see them as having probably the truth within themselves, and our job is really just to guide that truth out so they can trust their path and follow it, then we've kind of done our jobs and maybe helped a few people. I
2: think that's a really good point.
1: So Dr. Joe seems like a pretty cool dude. He prescribes medications for opiate addictions and seems to really want to hear what the patients want to say. That he somehow thinks of them as an individual redefining themselves each day. That maybe they're not just defined as being an addict. That maybe we even all have the power to redefine ourselves at any point in time. Even people think of themselves as just addicts. Interesting ideas. But how does this actually play itself out? with what kind of treatment he might offer them. Would it be the standard conventional substance use outpatient treatment? or treatment may slightly different. And what the heck is IFT? Well, I'm gonna head into a couple other questions here. All right. Um, what are you most fired up about in the addiction field currently? I'm fired up? Yeah, I know it's kind of a weird question to ask in the addiction field because it's kind of in in my experience, it's always been kind of slow moving with research and changes in the field. When I look back and when I started in 1990 and trace it up to 2017. Oh well, what's like? Did you get?
2: Did I give you one of those treatments? The the IFT the. Interferential therapy, No. Yeah, I did you get one. one. Yeah, right. well, that would be great oh, okay. to talk about that. So that's what I'm kind of fired up about. It. <laughs> yeah, let's hear so, it. Tell us, Give us so, a little bit of a quick background on it, and what's it about? So it's a, a means of electrical electrical stimulation where there's... Uh, and, and this is kind of like where taking what's in one field of science or one field of medicine and bringing it over into another field. So this uh, form of therapy is, uh, has a long, long history of like, showing benefits for, uh, for, for pain and for chronic pain and, and also for um, a host of other maladies uh, like um, uh, urinary incontinency, chronic constipation, I mean, there's just, a, a, just a, a vast multitude of different modalities, but... So, yeah, what, what is but, it? What does it stand for, and what
1: is uh, it, and what does
2: it look like for,
1: like, our listeners?
2: Well, it's uh, a little skin electrodes that kind of little patches that kind of go on two places of your body, and then a little, a, a small uh, electrical stimu- stimulator that hooks up to those electrodes and gives a little tingle, so it, it gives a tingling sensation. I think I explained it once before to you, it's like like getting an electric massage. But what what happens, and again, this is partly theory in terms of why it works rather than, you know, that it does work, is that it sends a signal to the brain, so through the nerves. And uh, the electrical pulses kind of, like, are uh, interacting with the... Through the peripheral nervous system and, and going up to the up to the up into the brain and kind of creating a release of of different neurotransmitters. Again, you know this is the theory of why it works. And you know current current theory about addiction from the medical perspective is all about you know dopamine deficiency. You know that there's not enough dopamine, so you know using external Drugs or external uh, pleasures and stuff kind of uh, uh, brings about uh, the dopamine. Uh, and I think I might have mentioned I have a new mentor. You know, like well, not that new, but like in September, I think we first started, you know, mentoring. Okay. You know, who's um, uh, can I say something real quick? Cheryl. Sure. So just
1: for our, our listeners that might be out there that are kind of like new to recovery yeah. and they might not even really even know a lot of maybe even what we're talking about um, on some level where other people might have heard of it. Um, What would be, so one thing I think of is this kind of idea that addiction is a disease and is affected at a physiological level. Right. And so then we want to intervene on a physiological level. Right. And so this is kind of one of like maybe a tool in that realm. And then how does the tool benefit people?
2: Well, it relieves their withdrawal symptoms from. Uh, um, so there's several benefits from from the. Therapy. It, it will relieve like the withdrawal symptoms by stimulating that uh, central nervous system to release the neurotransmitters that normally are obtained from like the drug. Okay, so and and so then uh, and it, it, there's so much comorbidity with with uh addiction oftentimes you know there's other diseases that are kind of like mixed in there often I mean sometimes it's you know just oh it's just the addiction you know it's just uh, a substance use disorder but oftentimes there's other things that are kind of uh, mixed in and and this goes back I think there's still like people that believe that oh you know all addiction is self-medication it's kind of like oh I'm relieving my depression or I'm I'm relieving my anxiety by using this particular substance, and you know, the, it's true. Those substances do have those kind of effects, but the well, you know, defining and and then now there's this whole, oh, oh, what's a politically correct term? You know, that we we shouldn't use that term, addict. You know, that that's not a very uh, it has a stigma stigma associated with being an addict. And you know, it's like I, I think that it, the field is kind of getting so, you know, like oh, don't use that word, don't use this word. I mean, it's like we're not using curse words. I mean, and and I mean, if a person tells me, oh, I'm not an addict, I'm not going to say, oh, you're you're an addict. You are in fact an addict. Say it. You admit know, it. right? Admit it. <laughs> admit it. Admit it. You know. I totally hear you. I totally hear you. <laughs> so I think it's kind of like you know. Uh, it's how do you want to be called? Co- you know, how do you, what does that word mean to you? You know, like if you put that label on yourself, uh, you know, yeah. you not want to be called that. I mean, if you don't want it, it's like, uh, and I, you know, the, maybe the analogy is like, oh, an African, African American or black, you know, it's like, you know, what do you want to be called? And what do you want, how do you want me to address? Not who you are. Yeah. Uh, you know, I like to see people, take that out of their self-definition, you know, like, of who they are. Yeah, or maybe even,
1: I, I almost but, think of, like, when I work with people, too, is this idea that expanding the identity, all right, so you've identified yourself maybe as addict. Well, what exactly does that mean to you? And yeah. drill down a little bit, like, one step further. What does that mean? Well, that means I go to 12-step meetings. That means I take Suboxone. That means I don't drink. And I think what I've seen, and I don't know if you've seen the same thing, but it's almost as if... Addiction itself has this, like, rigid phenomena to it. It makes people, like, when they're in the midst of it, they see things very rigidly. Use patterns are very rigid, very ritualistic. Um, They see their identity very rigidly. And then when they get into recovery, what I notice is that um, it's almost like one of the things we have to kind of break through is, like, that rigidity and get a little bit more flexible, more innovative, being able to look at yourself in maybe different sorts of ways And so what I've seen some benefit of is helping people in recovery see themselves not just as an addict or in recovery, but, hey, wait a second, I'm like this, I'm like this. And there might even be unexplored parts to me that I haven't really found out about. And then that seems to juice people up more.
2: I don't know. You know, I don't think, you know, most of my patients aren't very rigid. You know, it's like there's some that are. Yeah. But there's also an equal number, I think, that live in chaos. It's kind of like that. Oh. You know, it's kind of like, oh. You know, just total... Total kind of... And I think it's kind of like uh, tying into... And that kind of goes back to my original kind of thought, is you have to address the patient where they're at and what's, you know, what's what's their life. I mean, if it's the chaotic kind of patient, I try to, you know, say, well, because I think they... You'll need a little bit of structure, you know, yeah, a little bit of structure in order to kind of really survive in, in society. you know it's kind of like you can't come to appointments an hour late. Yeah, you know and, and so for them, you know it's kind of like I want to see their behaviors change to have them more have more structure. you're right, the ones that are very rigid, you know, kind of like once they're on a stable dose of, of suboxone, I don't want. I don't. I don't want to lower my dose. Not now. Not now. It's not the right time. You know. And it's kind of like. And they're very ritualistic about taking their suboxone regularly. Whether it's like all in the morning or it's like, uh, you know, uh, half a film in the morning, half a film at night, or whatever it is, they kind of get into that pattern. And you know. And I've had patients. So it's really kind of meeting the person where they're yeah. at and try to accommodate what's going to work best for them. For them. You know. And and gradually getting them to see that it's and i think that the the benefit of having medication assisted treatment whether it's methadone or suboxone or or vivitrol i mean i think that the, there's there's other ideas about vivitrol that you know that uh, and we're talking to a diverse population here you know so i, I to give them a whole you know, talk about different medications. I mean, I think those could be future podcasts or, or you know, maybe places refer them to, you know, links that, where they can get more information on that, reliable information. You know, a lot of times, you know, searching just the internet, you're going to get, like, just a bunch of garbage, you know, yeah. like, in terms of, like, oh, this is what I did, you know, da-da-da, and this worked, da-da-da, and, oh, that was horrible, this was wonderful, you know, and it's like, so patients will come and say, oh, you know, it's like, i and so kind I said, well, that's why you're coming to see me is to kind of, get the, the, the right information. You know, the word doctor means teacher, you know, okay. so that's what I try to do and be for my patients is their teacher. So maybe what we could do. I don't grade do. them. I don't grade, you know. Yeah, you not great. There's no grades. It's pass-fail. But maybe what we, what we could do
1: is get some of those links from you before we release the show okay. and put those tied into the podcast so people listen to it. And they're interested in looking or getting some resources for some really helpful links in regards to those medications, we could steer them maybe in the right direction.
2: Or you can put them on your webpage.
1: Yeah, we'll put them on the webpage, put them connected with the show. Excellent. Um, What trends are you seeing in the uh, opiate and Suboxone? you know, treatment field or medication field? What, what, what do you see happening? Because I know these medications have evolved and we're kind of speaking more or less to kind of people who have um, gotten, struggled with opiate addiction, either heroin, pills, um, you know, prescription opiates, and then they enter treatment and try to get help. And now, one of the big factors of, of getting over the hump is, number one is I don't want to get dope sick and go through withdrawal. And then number two is all right, so how do I, do I need a medication enhancement? And if I do, do I just do that? do Or do I do
2: recovery? What do I do? And so I know you've kind of talked, we briefly talked about this, but... Again, it's got to, you know, for me, it's like patient-centered. So, you know, a patient comes in and it's like, it's... uh You know, usually they've been through different treatment programs before. And, you know, so I'll ask them, what seemed to benefit you before? You know, so if they say, you know, well, I've had counseling and that really, you know, was just a waste of time, then I don't push that on them. And if they've been in, you know, like a medication assisted treatment and had successful, and how do you gauge success? I mean, you know, it's like, so I asked them, well, what was successful? Yesterday, my new patient was actually in a program, a Suboxone program for um about a year and a half. And this was goes back about uh five years ago. for well, twenty fourteen is it? Uh we're seventeen, so that's just three years ago. Three. <laughs> We were calculated just a little. While. I did that in my head. I was actually using my fingers. Joel was using his head. I don't have two thousand seventeen fingers, so it's good. Kind of I know Ted you, it's easy for you. So uh, but anyway, so uh and he was and then like afterwards after he left the program, um it would, he uh he maintained uh medication assisted treatment by getting suboxone on the street for six months and he was in his uh terms he was sta- you know he was stable and then this, uh, something happened to the availability of suboxone in the market so then and it, it was that fear of going through withdrawal that uh drove him back to kind of using his uh, uh drug of choice and heroin and uh, and uh, uh, morphine, yeah, you know. So what? But, you, yeah, so I I think it's kind of like. Uh, so maybe a better question is you know is like, is there is there like some recipe for that can be applied to everyone, right? You know that yeah. everyone needs you know medication everyone needs therapy you know I think that there's some people that can do it without medication and there's some people that you know therapy isn't is detrimental you know so that and the medication uh, is is the way to go right, so you know are, are they gonna and then it's also like how, what what's a success you know so I ask the patient is like well what, whats your, what's your goals what do you want what do you want? You know, and it's, most people want to be normal. I mean, you know, and it's like... It's the tip of the iceberg that comes into treatment, though. You know, so what about the people that are not there that don't want treatment? They're, which, which, when
1: you look at the research, it's, it's very interesting. Yeah. That we know that roughly, like, 10 to 15% of those people with an active alcohol or drug issue, addiction issue actually show up at the treatment doors. Right. That means there's, like... of other people running around probably actively still using. Mm -hmm. But what we're finding out in some of the research, too, is that there's people out there that have stopped using, but they've just done it on their own terms. There's a lot of similarity in their behaviors to people that, like, might work a conventional 12-step program or go through um, addiction treatment. Some of those mainstays, like they get a new group of friends, they kind of reconfigure their life, they get new hobbies... Um, to get more connected to the people around them that are right. more supportive. Um, but yeah, that's a great question. It's like, there's a lot of people out there that, that can maybe even this those podcasts.
2: Right. And so, yeah, I think there is, and there there is a lot of uh, tools that are available through the community, like 12-step programs, you know, and th- and smart recovery, and things that will help people that want to, that, that can't afford, like, to or don't want to really engage in one-on-one, kind of. Like, walk through. Like, I was talking about this was like,
1: walk. Like, you know, I asked myself, and I really thought about this question. It's like, why is it that 90% of people don't walk through the treatment center doors? Right. And I'm, like, thinking, I put myself in their place, and I'm, like, that's a huge, huge huge-ass step, to be honest with you. Like, because you then, when you walk through those treatment doors, you identify yourself. As wait a second, I need help and I'm really struggling here. And not everybody's really has the courage to do that. So I become more curious about these other people kind of floating around there, what they're doing, and are there alternative approaches? And that's why I really like um, some of your perspective on taking people where they're at and seeing like what will work. Well, like we can't do a cookie size approach to everybody yeah. anymore even though that's the way the insurance industry and conventional like intensive outpatient programs and relapse
2: prevention programs work well you know and i think that it's, it's making yeah so no I, I and i think it's 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 making those those things available to people you know that uh, that it's um, and and how do you engage you, just how do you get those services about you know it's kind of like oh you know you talk talk to someone you find how do you find that information about like what's available you
1: yeah because the day of the event you right. dial it in and there's like a zillion yeah. like you said half of it's like trash yeah and you don't know what's oh, legit, legit what's not no, then you have you know no. just like marketing schemes and all that sort of thing going on yeah,
2: yeah. and so, you know and it's like you know it, it's kind of it has to fit with what that person is so you know i think um uh, and most of the time, people have tried that, you know, that come in, you know, it's like, oh, I need more help than than what's going to offer. I mean, I, you know, it's like, I don't think people kind of go to the, just like if you were going to go to the doctor for anything, if it was something acute or something that was chronic, oh, you know, you know, you'll go one time maybe, you know, it's like, uh, or, but first you'll try, oh, if it was like, um, give an example, okay, I a sore throat, I got a sore throat, oh, you know, it's... I'll gargle with some, you know, Listerine or something, you know, and see if that'll take care of it. Oh, you know, it's probably a cold, you know, or because my wife has it, and she had it for like three days, and it's like, okay, oh, I could take care of this on myself. I don't need to go see the doctor, right? Yes. But then when it starts to last like two weeks, you know, or, some, or there's some time period that, you know, oh, I better... Or your feet, you start having symptoms where this is getting way too your temperature rises and you say, well, I'll take some uh, some Tylenol and the temperature's still going, you know, I got a fever. And at some point, you're going to say, you know, I think I need to do something more than just the gargle no, and, and the and the over-the-counter um, fever reducers, you know, and, and go in and, and seek help.
1: That, that is a phenom point from the standpoint that, in my experience, yeah. when you talk to you do enough interviews with people that struggle with addiction, Yeah before they even walk in the treatment doors, they have tried a bunch of stuff right. before that. Right. And I really like your approach is like, let's tap into what they've actually tried. Maybe there's some things that have like sort of half worked or right. maybe a few things have worked and then let's work it into the repertoire to give them a successful plan to ultimately, you know, get a handle on their life and, and get the life they want.
0: Yeah.
1: So I... I have a really, this question is just burning me up a little bit, speaking of fever. <laughs> but I just wanted to, like, for our listeners, it's like, what if I'm listening to this podcast and um, this is the scenario. I had an injury, a back injury, let's say. And I went to the doctor to prescribe me prescription opiates, got me on some Vicodin. I got hooked. Um, I developed tolerance. Got into it more and more. Got to enjoy the high more and more. Um, they put a clamp down on my pills. My doctor stopped writing me scripts. The cost of a Vicodin on the street has risen. You know, I think I talked to a detective in UW Whitewater. He said, "I think like the average price for just a one tab of Vicodin is almost street value is almost like 80, 80, 90 bucks now. Where back yeah. in the day, it used to be." Maybe 20 or 30, you yeah. could, so you could really suffice. And then we do the thing that's sort of mimicked America's. I flip over to heroin. I never thought of myself as an IV heroin user, but I know I can get a hit for $15 mm-hmm. each time, which is economically way cheaper. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find myself really hooked, yeah. become a daily heroin user over the past year. I've thought about quitting. Um, I've been dope sick a couple of times and never want to do that again. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I just happen to listen to this podcast. I'm thinking about wanting to get help. What would be, like, tangible, what's out there for me? Like, in terms of, like, <clears throat> medications and treatment
2: well, or none? It. Well, so... Uh, I know, I just I totally out. <laughs> I think it's you know it's kind of like with the, you know we we keep talking about making more and more treatment available, but I think you know that there's all sorts of uh, barriers you know and like you pointed out like the stigma, you know being identified like oh yeah now I'm going to be identified and and you know it's it's not it's 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 kind of um, um, a reflection on our society about that stigma, stigmatization. I mean I think it should be. That uh, and, it, and it's also like, you know, I mean, we're getting off on a little bit of a tangent, you know, in terms of like health care should just be, if you need it, it's there for everyone. It's not like, oh, you know, it's like talking about repealing Obamacare and replacing it with, with I don't know, trump care or whatever it's going to be called. You know, that, or ryan you care you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You've covered it's all still, your bases. It, it, it's still, it's kind of like this... And I get this every day with, you know, it's like I, I don't take insurance, you know, so I, it's self pay. Pa- patients have to come to pay. So it's, yeah, there's a selection bias. I mean, they're still identified because the medication's not cheap, you know, so they will go through their pharmacy pr- uh, insurance program. So they're identified. And even if they th- were paying self paying, they're still being identified by the Wisconsin uh, prescription drug monitoring. Program now, so so anybody who gets a script, so everyone who uh, picks up this a script for any controlled substance is on there, you know. So, uh, and I think you know the intention was to uh, try to get doctors to stop prescribing so much opioids, you know, like for um, for pain, you know. And so the CDC guidelines came out last year, so and. Uh, the opi- it, and it's this big opioid epidemic where uh, there's a, a large number of opioid overdose deaths. And um, nationally, it, it was like the last couple of years, uh, it was pills that were outnumbering you know heroin overdose deaths. And so I think just a couple months ago, nationally, heroin now has exceeded the pills. So I think it's it's been effective in terms of like reducing the amount of <laughs> of the availability. Uh, of the pills, and the price goes up when the availability goes, so people, more people are turning to heroin, because it's a lot less expensive, you know, so it's a matter of economics. Okay. You know, and you know, is there an, is there a, uh, an easy solution? I don't, I don't, uh, I don't think so. Yeah. You know, I think it's a it's a matter of, like, destigmatizing the disease, you know, so that uh uh, and making treatment available everyone to,
0: uh, to everyone. Hey there, Recovery Nation, producer John here again. That was part one of our interview with Dr. Joe Bluestein. Join us next week when Ted asks the question, "So what else do I need to know about addiction treatment?" And Dr. Bluestein helps us understand how you can potentially stack the deck against opiate addiction. Today's episode featured music by Patrick Reinholds and me, John Procruzzi. If you like what you heard, consider subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. And visit fullpotentialnow.org for your free TED tools, including where to find a rehab center near you. Thanks for listening.